And a Happy New Year to all the listeners of the Irish Football Fans Podcast. I'm Joseph McCarthy of the Irish Abroad Football Statistics website, and I'm joined by Mark Kennedy of Hawkeye Psychic for our second part in the look back at Irish international football in 2023. We're going to conclude our review with a look at the performance of the women's senior team, and we're also going to look at the under-17s performance in the European Championships in Hungary. Mark, it's good to talk to you again. Happy New Year. Yeah, many happy returns, Joe. I hope you're all keeping well anyway, and all your listeners. Let's get started with the women's first game of the year. Uh, A friendly, a fairly low-key friendly uh, against China at the end of a training camp that was held in Spain. Not a lot notable happened in the game, to be honest, other than uh, it was the first appearance of Australian-born defender Deborah Ann de la Harp. And also, we saw Marissa Sheva come into the Ireland squad. Katie McCabe was uh, captain for the 50th time. And uh, look, I think at the time... Everyone felt that the training camp and the, the fixture itself served their purpose at the start of their preparations for the World Cup. I think it was really kind of start of the year. I mean, an exciting year that was going to lie ahead for Vera Powell management team and also the players. Go to kind of get a few days training in Spain and China being good quality opposition. The fact that it was a king sheet as well probably was a confidence booster heading into those U.S friendlies in April but all in all fairly good and I think Aoife Mannion debut as well um, so there was a few decadents here that impressed as well so look it was a chance for the French players to really kind of impress on the training camp so look I think in terms of training camp's goal I think it ticked most of the boxes here. The next two fixtures for the team came in April uh, a double header against the then ranked number one team in the world the USA both games taking place in the States, in uh, Austin, and in St. Louis, Missouri. Again, I think the idea was that we were playing against higher-ranked opposition than we played in the qualifiers. This would prepare us for the, the World Cup, especially those opening two fixtures against the uh, host Australia and a uh, highly-ranked Canadian team. The first game against the States, I felt we were a little overwhelmed. I think the, the 2 nil results flattered the US a little bit. There's no shame in losing to a team like the United States. Uh, the first game, probably an expected result, and I felt that we gave a better account of ourselves in the, the second game, only losing 1-0, conceding just before half-time. But I, I think we actually looked, we looked very organised in the game, you know, playing a slightly unfamiliar formation. But I felt after the two games that, again, it was a, a worthwhile exercise. And again, we were building to the group games in, in Australia. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Joe, there. I think number of levels, you know, that this friendly fixture set was basically announced. And I think even logistically for Republic of Ireland, you know, really testing out the logistics preparation in terms of, look, they were on the 8th of April in Austin, Texas, and then a quick turnaround to go to St. Louis, Missouri. There was a bit of that going on for the backroom staff, and I think all things went well. Um, and also the opposition as well here, Joe. Like Vera Powell at the start of the year was at pains to really emphasise the Irish media, the the elevation of opposition that was required here heading into a World Cup. And to be fair, like the first game was a tricky one. I mean, I think there was a sense of maybe a little bit of a few of the players being a bit overall by the occasion. But um, certainly when we got to the second fixture, in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, forced to go from Cook on 43 minutes. But I thought Republic of Ireland's shape, 
the retention of possession. Um, that it was all pretty much on point, uh, to be honest. Now, final third threat probably was a concern. Uh, Caruso was probably leading kind of a pretty lonely life up there, up top. But I think in terms of defensive shape, in terms of, you know, really kind of sticking to the game plan from a defensive perspective, an awful lot to probably be pleased about. And again, the United States, you know, being one of the top echelon women's sides in the world, we really prepared ourselves very well for the North American opposition that we were going to face in the World Cup in the form of Canada. So, look, I think it was a useful experience for the Republic of Ireland team, you know, on tour, on the road, you know, really kind of getting to know the squad a bit in terms of figuring out how the squad was going to evolve. So, look, uh, again, more positive signs here. That first game might be better remembered for uh, being Sinead Farley's debut. A, a slightly controversial call-up, nothing to do with the ability of the player, but she had been out of the game at that point for seven years and had recently resigned with Gotham FC in the, the NWSL, has organised her Irish passport and declared for the Republic. Some, and like I include myself among them, felt that her call-up so close to the tournament, to the World Cup, and also uh, at 33 years of age, didn't I felt it was a little unfair to the players that had gotten us to the tournament. And you know, we'll, we'll get to the, the squad announcement later. She only played the first game, the the tuna loss in Texas, but I didn't see a lot from her to merit a call-up for the World Cup. But the feedback from the players that were involved in training sessions with her and also from the coaching well, was very positive. Look, I think it was quite clear, even at this point, that Vera Powell was really casting the net fairly wide for squad selection. Really, you were getting the sense here from Vera Powell, particularly, that maybe the squad depth she didn't feel was up to the level that was going to be required for a World Cup. So, hence the likes of Marissa Sheva gets called into the squad as well. Carusa had been kind of an ever-present anyway. Sinead Farley, very experienced, and I know there's the relationship between Vera Pell and Sinead Farley, particularly in Houston Dash. Now, that's the elephant in the room here. During this time as well, the media were circling in on Vera Pell in terms of the reports regarding, you know, Houston Dash and um, the, the head coach and also Vera Pell being kind of inextricably linked here as well. So I think from that perspective here, maybe it caught a few of surprise, but look, Take nothing away from Sinead Farley. I mean, you could see from even the limited cameo that she had in Austin, Texas, very good technically, obviously good coming back into the international scene, let alone coming back from, you know, limited club football. I think she did well considering the circumstances, but you could obviously see the talent that was there, but obviously being out of the game for so long, definitely um, fatigue did really kick in in that first fixture. But I suppose at the time, Joe, you know, you had to give everyone that was getting the call-up an opportunity and if they could elevate the squad performance and so be it. But I think even now, you know, we're reflecting here a few months on, I think it's quite clear that Fierpel was really putting the house on the US-based pillars to really take Ireland to the next level. With the first three games of the year complete uh, and the squad announcement imminent, the final two home games before the World Cup took place in Tallaght Stadium. The first uh, friendly against Zambia ended in a 3-2 win, but the team actually uh, went behind early on and had to come back from 1-0 down, uh, an unfortunate own goal by Izzy Atkinson after only 16 minutes uh, to eventually emerge victorious 3-2. 
those three goals were the first goals scored by the team in the fourth game of the year. Apart from some notable results against Georgia, the team had struggled to score a little at the, up under Vera Powermark. I mean, I did note that I feel that some of our set pieces were a bit one-dimensional. Everything seemed to be aimed at Louise Quinn. Don't get me wrong, Louise Quinn, she's tall, she's good in the air, she's an obvious target. But it did feel like everything was going towards her. Was that a concern ahead of the squad announcement and ahead of the World Cup itself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think... You know, just in terms of the final third threat, that always had been a bit of a question mark on this side, even in the World Cup qualification campaign against even Scotland, for instance. Amber Barrett's goal is superb, um, to be fair, but I think genuine kind of final third quality, even though Katie McCabe, I'll stand up there, I think her final touch, you know, final ball in, maybe left a bit to be desired. I, I think it was good anyway, heading into the... World Cup run-in that we did score three goals against Zambia, but to be perfectly fair, Joe, as well, our defensive shape in transition wasn't at it, uh, to be honest. Zambia could have scored a few more goals, only for Courtney Brosnan to pull off a few great saves. I mean, we were a little bit exposed. First half wasn't at it either, was it, in terms of our shape or also cohesion, midfield, attack, defence, just literally was non-existent. So, I mean, when once Amber Barrett came on, Good things started to happen here, and I mean, delight for Claire Reardon as well, uh, who came in with an emphatic header as well. So to be fair, um, Joe, good to get the win, but I think, as you said here, there was um, the set piece seemed to be predictable, but I think we were talking about this around June, and we were hoping maybe there was a few more tricks up our sleeve in terms of set piece delivery, but <laughs> I don't think that really um, uh, came to fruition. So for the time that was in it, I think you know it was a concern, but I suppose. Optimism was high in terms of being a, de- a deputant in the FIFA World Cup. Yeah, and I think the optimism was stymied a little bit a few days later when the squad was announced on the 28th of June. A uh, 23-player squad announced to travel to Australia after the squad announcement itself was made before the final home friendly against France uh, in early July. The squad itself felt fairly settled, but there was some notable omissions uh, and omissions isn't even the right word because Sophie Whitehouse, Harriet Scott and Jamie Finn travelled with the squad, but as training players, which considering the contributions that all three players made to the qualification effort, including, especially Jamie Finn, to not get a place in the final squad, it, it did feel a bit controversial. And I think possibly the first time that Vera Powell's management was being publicly questioned. I'd agree with you there, Joe. I think the manner and some of the, even four players travelling with the squad, it just felt very hollow, didn't it? Particularly Jamie Finn, who had provided an awful lot of versatility for her, and let's face it, uh, from a defensive perspective on the flank. So I think her omission particularly was a bit of a shock, like Harriet Scott as well. Very loyal international player for Republic of Ireland. She subsequently... Uh, went to the retirement route so I think there was one or two here could feel very hard done by I think hard luck story probably Aoife Mannion as well here Joe and I think that personnel a withdrawal really hurt for public fans if you think of the World Cup tournament because I think if Vera Powell had her time back and everyone was fit and healthy I think Aoife Mannion would have been in that three uh, person uh, central defensive unit yeah I think the way things were I think the loyalty to certain squad players not really been there I think there was a question mark for me I know I publicly said about Marissa Sheva coming on 
hadn't impressed me whatsoever. You say about Sinead Farrelly, yes, and maybe Kira Carusa, but definitely Marisa Sheva really hadn't shown anything in terms of the matches to really justify a selection here. So, so yeah, it kind of started to kind of, you could see there was a little bit of a discontent, I would say, within the players, I would say, heading out of that Zambia game into the French game, because, I mean, let's face it here, Joe, France gave Ireland a footballing lesson in that opening half, really. Uh, you know, three in a loss, you know, but again, it was really showing a few cracks, maybe, uh, heading into the World Cup. The final home friendly, sending the team off to Australia against France. Again, another team ranked in the top 10 in the world. And again, after the two games against the States, and you could say that it was ramping up to the type of opposition we were going to face in Australia, but maybe if they had their time back, they would reverse the Zambia and France fixtures so that meant that the team would leave with a win. And I know things like availability come into play here, but France were absolutely awesome. Le Sommet, I hope that's how her name is pronounced, up front was just phenomenal, leading the line like very few players can do in the women's game. And I think their performance in that game was why, uh, in our preview of the tournament, that I tipped them as uh, as winners. Didn't come out uh, as winners in the end, but I felt like after watching them, they were just that good. that They were strong contenders for the title. Yeah, I certainly agree, Joe. I think France really showed the technical skill set that would be faced by the Republic of Ireland in this World Cup tournament. And I think France in the tournament were incredibly unlucky uh, not to really advance deep into the tournament, to be fair. They had exceptional players. They showed it particularly in that first half. But it is all about scheduling, really, at the end of the day here, Joe. You know, heading away. Again, there was the perception here that it would be a sold-out crowd. It did materialise to be that case as well. So there were probably questions in terms of the organisation of the event. So I, I think, to be perfectly honest here, Joe, the, whole, the farewell probably had a bit of a damp feel to it. There was one more game scheduled before the World Cup itself, a friendly against Colombia in Brisbane that ended up being abandoned after only 20 minutes due to the management team feeling that the Colombian players were playing a, an overly physical game, uh, in their words, with Denise O'Sullivan suffering what could have possibly been a, an injury to take her out of the tournament, but ended up just being uh, a bad bruise. I think there was this kind of added to the conversation that had been going on since the squad has announced that, you know, why did this game take place? Okay, I accept that games against top-class opposition are needed to bring you up to that level. But this close to the tournament, did we really need to play a team like Colombia? I mean, was, again, availability comes into play here. But it felt like, especially after the game was abandoned, it just felt like another mistake was made in the build-up to the first appearance in the World Cup. This was a disastrous exercise. I don't know what was the objective of this friendly, if I'm perfectly honest, Joe. You're a week out from the tournament. Colombia, very competitive, very aggressive. <laughs> they don't do friendlies. Who in the Republic of Ireland camp really organises friendly? We've not really known that. Has there been a post-mortem the FAI, particularly on this, because... The fact that the game gets cancelled after 20 minutes and really the the media back and forth between Colombia and Republic of Ireland did both sides absolutely, well particularly Republic of Ireland, no favours really. Colombia did come out then and respond positively with that 2-1 win against uh, Germany in the World Cup group a week later. But from Republic of Ireland, it did seem to be a circus around this event. 
And do remember here, Joe, as well, the Republic of Ireland basically setting up in Brisbane, the FIFA inspection of the training facilities deemed inadequate. There had to be a change in training facilities. So there now were a few issues in terms of setup for the camp as well. So this really did pile on on that. Fortunately for Ireland, Denise O'Sullivan's, you know, a bruise, but again, it could have been far worse. But again, if Fear of Power Management were looking for um, a, a behind closed door session, why wouldn't they have just played maybe one of the women's soccer league teams around the Brisbane area, or maybe a representational team, just to keep things ticking over? I, I don't know why Columbia was being chosen, maybe purely because logistics and location of the bases here between Columbia and Republic Farm, but it was a mistake. It was a complete own goal here. And really an awful lot of attention really focusing in on that, leading into the open game against Australia, the host nation. So this was something that the Republic of Ireland camp could have done without. Ireland took to the field in uh, Stadium Australia in Sydney. The game hadn't been moved to the, the larger stadium due to ticket demand. Uh, so we were hoping for maybe something like Italy and Giant Stadium. Didn't quite reach those heights, but there was still a sizable Irish support in the crowd and the team got a boost before kickoff when it was announced that uh, Sam Kerr would not be available. We went in the little at half time. The team were looking confident, playing some good football. Hadn't created a lot of chances, but they were restricted in Australia. The second half then, unfortunately, we conceded a penalty for a clumsy challenge, really, uh, that was converted by Caitley, who who's with Arsenal. And unfortunately, I think, you know, it's a criticism we have the men's team as well, that everyone has a plan until we got punched in the face. And we got punched and we didn't really respond to it. There was a, a late Louise Quinn header that almost got a draw, was probably as close as we came to equalising. It was a a little bit of a deflating result after the build-up that had been and had been going on really since since beating Scotland in the playoff. Indeed, uh, I think, you know, there's plenty of regrets, particularly in this group stage for Public Farland. This is probably one of them in terms of the personnel. You know, it's a nervy night for both teams, Australia host nation, Public Farland entering into their opening tournament. And I think we asked before the tournament that, you know, Ireland get on the front foot, but never really happened in this game, uh, Joe. It seemed to be very much defensive shape, structure. Australia really trying to probe with passes in behind was very unsuccessful in the first half, but they obviously had identified the weak link here, unfortunately. And international football, Joe, as you well know, weak points do get exploited early and often. And I think Marissa Shaver was completely out of her depth in this game, unfortunately. And just the positioning and switching off for that fraction of a second was pivotal. A clumsy challenge, penalty written all over it. It's more of the, the whole Vero Power squad selection for me anyway. Unfortunately, again, you can point to maybe Abby Larkin's cameo came in with abandon. Young player looked to run direct, caused some issues for Australia defensively, provided some crosses in for Katie McCabe, half chances. You mentioned Louise Quinn, but again, it's too little, too late. We really, you know, we really surrendered initiative here too much in that opening game. And to be perfectly honest, Australia, you know, they were comfortable 1 0 winners if it'd been brutally honest about it. Uh, you know, we've mentioned Louise Quinn a couple of times now, and we've said that one of Stephen Kenny's go-to tactics was pushing Shane Duffy up front late on to maybe get a, his head to the ball. I mean, was that a similar tactic used by, by Vera Powell? <laughs> yeah, you, you spoke volumes there, Joe. Yeah, I mean, 
what Amber Barrett must have thought on the bench, particularly in the closing stages, uh, would be, I'd uh, be very interested to see her memoirs on that because I think that was a slap in the face of the squad that chart with Republic Fire and uh, Ladies Team, particularly in the, the final chart, to have that tactic used again and again and again in this qualification campaign really just, you're losing Claire morale pretty quickly here, Joe. And I would say here it's beginning of the end for Vera Powell because players are probably looking at it in the so's bench perspective and saying, okay, game's in the melting pot with 10 to 15 minutes to go. Am I part of the plans? And for certain players here, they weren't. And I think, to be perfectly honest, uh, Joe, it, it, it's a very draconian tactic. You know, sometimes it works, but for the majority of times, opposition are so kind of clued in to those sort of tactics. And really, it's a Republic of Ireland tactic. You've mentioned about the senior men's team, you know, Shane Duffy going up for front or kind of throwing caution to the wind. But I mean, teams are so well used to negating that sort of threat. I mean, that was pretty draconian. And it really kind of smacked in the face of what the preparation was leading up to this tournament. You know, where was the plan B? Did we have any creativity? Were we going to think outside the box a little bit in terms of our final third issues? Answer was equivocally, no. And the body of evidence was starting to emerge here from Vera Poe in terms of our tactics and our setup. We'll discuss it uh, after we finish talking about the World Cup, but it did emerge that the internal review of the build-up to the World Cup, the preparation and the actual tournament itself had already begun before the group stage had ended. The second game in the group was against Olympic champions Canada. They'd had a, their own scandals uh, in the build-up to the tournament with uh, issues uh, regarding management and payments. And we felt that we might have had a slight advantage going into the game. And it began in the best possible way with Katie McCabe scoring the first Olympico scored at the Women's World Cup and obviously Ireland's first goal scored at the Women's World Cup. Um, but it's, as the first half went on, we sat back a little more and eventually it led to a, an unfortunate long goal by Megan Connolly just on the stroke of half time. In the second half, it felt like you know there was only really one team in it and it was Canada. The winner scored by Adrian Leon. Just a, an absolute touch of class, even with two defenders around her, to completely take them out of the game. And even as close in as she was, to give herself an extra step to finish from close range. So it meant that with that result, uh, we were out of the tournament uh, with a game to play. Yeah, very disappointing to me. It was a filthy night in Perth as well, wasn't it? I mean, driving wind and rain. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, really kind of uh, very much Irish conditions, really, to be perfectly fair. We started very well, didn't we? I mean... Even before Katie McCabe scored from the corner kick, we did have chances. And even after that, first 20, 25 minutes, we were the team in the top. I mean, I have never seen Buchanan, uh, the centre half for Canada, being turned so much as she was in that first 30 minutes. I think this was the, the telling difference here. The final third proficiency issues really coming to the fore here. Look, we should have put Canada to the sword in the first 30 minutes. Didn't, should have been 2 3 nil up, didn't. And then Canada, you could see, could started to get a foothold in the game. Their players really in midfield, really kind of picking up the pace. I think our tempo dropped a bit as well, Joe, particularly in the last 10 minutes of the half. And unfortunately for Megan Connolly, uh, was the unfortunate person to put through her own goal just before half time. But you could see switching off. There was concentration lapses here. Passes not going to feed. It was just. Just one of these things, but as you say, Leon's goal really did emphasise the gulf in the final third now between the two sides. Marvellous goal, 
fitting to win any game. And I mean, we really didn't have much in terms of, I think the substitutions as well, Joe, if I recall, raised a few eyebrows, I think, uh, just in terms of final third. Again, there wasn't really anything really of note that I can recall from the last 15, 20 minutes. I think Canada saw the game pretty comfortably, if I'm being brutally honest. <laughs> we look back now in Canada, they really shot themselves in the foot in terms of their preparation. And again, they were put to the sword by Nigeria. Uh, I think it was just opportunity lost again from Republic of Ireland perspective, but I think more issues in terms of our attacking setup, I would say. The results being knocked out of the tournament, I think a lot of that came to play in the final game in the group against Nigeria. There wasn't a lot to talk about in that game. Nigeria did have something to play for, which was they, they were still in with a chance of qualification. They did need the results in the other game to go their way. Canada played Australia at the same time that we were playing Nigeria. They needed uh, a loss for Canada and at least a point against Ireland to advance to the knockout stage. And, you know, much like the infamous game between Ireland and the Netherlands in Italia 90, once news of the scoreline in Melbourne came through, I think there was probably a subconscious agreement between the two sides. Okay, look, let's just finish nil nil and, you know, let Nigeria play in the, the knockout stages. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, Joe. I think it was looking fairly apparent very early on in the Australia-Canada game that Australia were completely on top. And I mean, you know, um, they were 2 all up after 39 minutes, weren't they? So look, I think the Nigeria mindset was quite clear. You know, don't really lose the game. Uh, I think Ireland really final third threat-wise were, you know, wasn't much there either, to be honest. I think if Nigeria pushed camp to shove, if they really needed a result, they would have pushed Ireland pretty hard down the stretch. But as you say, I think a diplomatic nil-all draw anyway to kind of finish out the World Cup campaign for both parties. Obviously, Nigeria went on to play England in the second round. Ireland brought back in their bags. As I said, it later emerged that the review process for the preparations for the tournament and the tournament itself had already begun. Fear Powell complained that it had begun too soon, but I felt that there was actually a good reason for it. Our last game in the tournament was against Nigeria on the 31st of July, and our first game in the Nations League was less than two months later on the 23rd of September against Northern Ireland. And it really needed to be complete, and whatever changes were deemed necessary by the review would have to have been in place by the time we kicked off against Northern Ireland. And less than a month after that game against Nigeria, the FBI decided not to offer uh, Vera Powell a new contract, meaning that Eileen Gleeson was going to take over as uh, interim coach for the Nations League games uh, until the end of the year. Like One thing that struck me about the end of Vera Powell's time in charge, Mark, was that after it was announced, there was no messages on social media from the players. Now, often when a manager is mutually consented from their position, there'll be thanks or you know messages of support from the players. And even if it's clearly obvious that they're written by a PR team, they exist. And in this case, uh, when Vera Pao's time in charge ended, there was nothing from the players at all. And in some ways, that silence says everything. Yeah, I'd agree, Joe. <laughs> Sad end to any managerial. And look, you have to give plaudits to Vera Pell. In terms of where the football program was, uh, to basically elevate them to a debut World Cup appearance in Australia and New Zealand, I think was not short of brilliant. 
So I think from that perspective, the legacy of Europol is probably that, but particularly in the last probably six to 12 months now, I think probably we've heard a little bit more from the likes of Diane Caldwell on that press conference before the Northern Ireland game, just in terms of the, the dissatisfaction. But I think trust has been completely eroded between the management and the players. I think we've alluded to it in terms of squad selection, in terms of the change in approach to basically bring in US-based players, I think, for other players that may have been a bit more established. I think you saw some volatile exchanges between the sideline and on the pitch. Katie McCabe looking for Sinead Farley to be, you know, substituted. Vera Powell basically responding. And even that response from Vera Powell, you know, this defiance, it was kind of like, yeah, you could have done this a little bit better here. Um, I think the rest of the squad would have seen that and just said, look, um, <laughs> you're leaving the player out to dry here. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, Joe, it had come to the point, I'd say even before the Nigeria game, that everyone concerned. I think the FBI, whoever was assessing the future of Vera Powell, probably would have concluded even before the Nigeria game that Vera Powell had lost the dressing room. She'd lost the player support. And I think an awful lot of we've talked about the Columbia game. We've talked about not maybe necessarily her fault, but in terms of the training ground situation, also in terms of maybe some of the scheduling uh, here, I think it's all adding up here. So for this announcement to be made a week before, and I think that's probably the, the bitter taste in Vera Powell's uh, mouth here, is that it was the, the waiting here, the lack of transparency from FAI in terms of to provide this decision from a governance perspective, I think was disappointing. I think they should have just put Vera Powell over misery immediately afterwards. I think it didn't need to treat four weeks, if I'm brutally honest. I think they could have just basically had the review, had a discussion. There was a parting of the ways here. Uh, but the fact that it went on so long into 10, half 10 at night for a press release to come out. And I would wonder here, Joe, as well, thank God Eileen Gleeson was an employee to FAI here because I'd wonder if anyone else outside of the association was going to be really genuinely applying for the job if any any of these candidates maybe had spoken to Vera Powell. Because, I mean, the manner and way this whole retrospective was conducted, and I think in terms of the, the decision to let Vera Powell go, I think as well was probably a major kind of cloud over this whole saga as well. But look, player support for Vera Powell was nil. And you could see it even from the press conferences as well. Leading into the Nigeria game when there was nothing on the line, you had senior players asked by media on training ground pitches, do you support Vera? And every one of them side-swerved side it. And look, <laughs> that's enough. So, look, I think the FBI need to tack a little bit sooner on this, I think. It meant that Eileen Gleeson's first game in charge was the uh, was also the first women's game to take place at Aviva Stadium. And in front of a crowd of about 35,000, the team lined out against Northern Ireland. And... It's hard to compare the setup under the two the two managers, and especially given the opposition. But I did feel that the team played with a greater freedom than we'd seen in the World Cup and in in the qualifiers. They were all over Northern Ireland, really, and three nil. If anything, flattered them. It could have been five or six easily. Lucy Quinn scoring from distance midway through the first half, and then Kyra Carusa and Lily Ag adding two more in the second half. It's about as positive as first games go for new managers. Starting the group top of the table after the first round of fixtures, after Albania and Hungary drew in the other game. And 
followed it up quickly with a, a 4-0 win in Budapest. And again, in that game, you know, the team were playing with, uh, it's hard to explain, but they just seem to be play happier playing the football that they were playing. Katie McCabe and uh, Kyra Caruso linked up better than we've seen them before. Katie uh, McCabe herself was playing a slightly different role, a little bit further forward up the pitch than she had under Vera Powell. And we were definitely getting the best out of her. Absolutely. Look, it was a change in coaching ethos, I suppose. Look, Eileen Gleeson has a vast array of footballing experience as a football manager, coach. So, look, to be honest with Colin Healy, Emma Byrne and Richie Fitzgibbon there in the background staff, just felt like a new era. And I think that Northern Ireland game as well, Joe, you know, those Diane Caldwell comments in terms of Vera Powell just came out with it. I think put a little bit more onus and pressure on Republic of Ireland to produce performance here against Northern Ireland. Now, look, Northern Ireland are a work in progress. They're build, rebuilding again. And to be honest, it was a professional performance. But look, if you're trying to evolve a game plan, I think this Nations League campaign was probably the ideal scenario for it because Hungary as well, a young team emerging, and also Albania as well. So look, these teams hadn't really the experience to really test the Republic of Ireland really from a defensive or in transition perspective. So look, and and the, the case in point here, who was the player of the match on the first fixture, Tyler Toland, who had been completely frozen out by Vera Pell in her reign. So I think you could see the sea change here uh, from Eileen Gleeson giving fresh starts to players who may have thought their international careers were over. So yeah, there was freshness about it. And as you say, there was positivity there, certainly. And some of the goals that were scored were, you know, very well worked, I would say. So, look, and Kyra Caruso as well was becoming more prominent, you know, getting more service where she was getting pretty served. If you can consider the World Cup, you know, she was feeding off scraps. Uh, literally, there was a bit more a plan to basically get her more involved. I definitely think Tyler Tolan should have been more involved under Vera Powell. Look, there was controversy there. Uh, she wanted assurances about her place in the team. On the other hand, you know, she didn't play a lot of football during her time in Spain and the return to the UK with Blackburn Rovers has seen her uh, you know, emerge as one of the better players in that squad. After the first round of fixtures, Ireland's three points clear at the top of uh, Group B1, seven goals scored and none conceded. It's about as good as it gets in international football. The two fixtures in October was uh, a double header home and away against Albania. The first game in Tata Stadium on the 27th and the second four days later in Albania. The first game was a fairly standard win for the, the women's team. Uh, nearly goal from, from McCabe cancelled out only three minutes later. But then Ireland just took control of the game and eventually running out 5-1 winners. Uh, McCabe with her second international hat-trick for Ireland. And then the, the second game, which possibly shouldn't have gone ahead at all, in the Loro Borici Stadium in Albania. The game was paused for an hour due to a massive downpour of rain. I can't understand how the game went ahead. The ball was sticking in water. Players were sliding around in tackles. There was a, an increased risk of serious injury. And it took a, a late goal from Denise O'Sullivan to, to get Ireland the win to consider the 100% record at that point. And after the second round of fixtures, Ireland actually were guaranteed first place in the group and qualification for League A in the 2025 Women's Nations League. Mark, should that game, whatever about restarting it, should it have gone ahead at all? <laughs> the conditions were farcical, weren't they, in terms of that heavy thunderstorm. 
bad hit um, scudder. So, I mean, to be fair, game should have been postponed, maybe rescheduled for the following day. Um, not sure who the powers that be made the call, but look, to be fair to the Republic of Ireland, they adapted the situation and credit to Denise O'Sullivan to hit the, the winner with two minutes of normal time to go. You, you, <laughs> in an occasion like that, Joe, you just get the result and get the hell out of there. But, I mean, it did raise serious questions to me in terms of the referee, the officiating, in terms of how they could leave. The pitch was certainly not playable. Uh, but, look, um, it is what it was. I mean, as you said, the 5-1 win in Dublin as well. Noted for the Katie McCabe uh, hat-trick, really. And Crusoe as well, getting two goals in three minutes. So I think, to be fair, it was a great uh, performance. But also, you could see the concession of the goal to Albania showed some lack of concentration, particularly in transition, uh, which is something that Ireland going to really have to focus on this year. But all in all, six points out of the double header. Not much more you can ask for, really. And qualification and promotion from the Nations League pool as well, which was the ultimate aim here. The final two games of the Nations League and indeed of the women's team this year were home against Hungary uh, at the beginning of December and then the return game against Northern Ireland four days later. Uh, the Hungary team that came to Tala Stadium was had much improved since the 4-0 win in September and Ireland were possibly lucky to come away with a win. It was uh, an own goal with about half an hour to go. turned out to be the winner and I think Hungary... Could be a team to watch in future. They ultimately finished second in the group during the promotion playoffs for promotion to League A. They ended up scoring 11 goals across six games in their final fixture against Albania. They ran out 6-0 winners at home. Maybe a team to, to watch in future. Certainly, Joe. Particularly when you see the age demographic of Hungary really is in the lower to mid-20s. Again, they gained valuable experience through this Nations League campaign and fact of the matter is, you know, they've learned an awful lot. So, yeah, as you say, could be a team to monitor, really, uh, for sure. And in the final game of 2023 for the Republic of Ireland women's team, they went to Windsor Park in Belfast to face Northern Ireland, and it turned out to be a, another another hammering against uh, a team that's, as you say, is in a transitional phase. Ireland winning 6-0, two goals in the first half from... Lucy Quinn and Heather Payne followed up by goals from Caruso McCabe, Louise Quinn and Caitlin Hayes in the second half. Ireland topped the group, 20 goals scored, two conceded, one against Albania, one in the final game against Northern Ireland. And 100% records, uh, six wins from six games and 18 points. And we'll be playing in League A in the next uh, Women's Nations League. I know at the, when the competition itself was announced, Vera Powell complained that it meant uh, Ireland would never qualify for a tournament. But along with promotion to League A, uh, we're guaranteed at least a playoff for Euro 2025. Absolutely. No, it's win-win here, Joe, certainly. And I mean, a person that we didn't really talk about here in this campaign was Caitlin Hayes as well. She came into the squad post-World Cup, you know, really fitted seamlessly into that defensive battery, really. Not a lot of players got opportunities from Eileen Gleeson. Eileen Gleeson wasn't afraid to rotate squad players to really kind of give everyone an opportunity, a fresh start. And I think it worked. I think enough lot of the players really didn't press. So, uh, But as you say yourself here, uh, Joe, likes of Kyra Caruso, I think it really re-energised her as well. The style of play particularly in the final third, a bit more invention, a bit more creativity and a bit more speed down the flanks uh, really did help Carusa in no small measure, given her goals tally in the Nations League. So look, all in all, Joe, 
ticks all the boxes really and you know we kind of headed into that campaign I mean I think Deason was at pains to say look it was an interim um, head coaching gig she enjoyed the experience but she was being I'd say particularly coy but I mean the results kind of spoke for themselves I know you can talk about likes of Hungary Albania Northern Ireland being teams compared to what the Republic of Ireland ladies have to deal with in the FIFA World Cup there still were teams that were needed to be uh, taken care of and they certainly did that I mean I think Deason was the overwhelming favourite I would have thought anyway from FAI headquarters to take it on and uh, I think ta- she's got her opportunity it's a no brainer really at the moment but I think the real work starts now The draw for the the qualifying campaign for Women's Euro 2025 is going to take place in March, the seedings haven't been confirmed yet but uh, as things stand Ireland are in League A uh, due to after qualifying and I think, look, we're, we're going to provide a stern test for any team. The changes that have been made, even since the end of the World Cup, have been positive. Uh, I'm not just talking about the manager, but also in the squad. Uh, I felt that the age profile of the squad for the tournament skewed a bit older. I had the stat that the starting 11 that's lined out against Canada was actually the oldest team ever to line out for the Republic of Ireland women's team. It's hard to confirm that because the birthdays of some of the players to represent the team, especially in, in the early few years of its existence, are, are lost. But I feel confident uh, with that statistic. And I think now that that's been brought down, the standard of football has improved. You have to take the opposition into account, but you can only be judged by what's in front of you. And we beat everything that was in front of us in the second half of the year. This is kind of leading, these Nation League games have been leading up now to qualification here to the Euros and I mean it'll be intriguing like the opposition will be elevated I think we've seen an exciting brand of football to be played by the team again I think there is quirks I think there is kind of improvement to be acquired particularly passing out from the back there had been occasions here where there was completely uh, mixed messages in terms of passing out from the back that weren't punished also in transition as well I think better teams would have exploited us a bit more on the counter so I think there is a few things here that I think Deason and the management staff are well aware that need to be addressed here. So, look, it's um, exciting. Exciting times for the team. They're coming in with good confidence. Media and the fans are firmly behind the team. Fira Powell, I think, for some, has been quite a distant memory now. So I think from the perspective of the Republic Farm Women's team, they're going into the Euro 2025 campaign in good stead. Yeah, and uh, we wish the management and the squad all the very best. We look forward to covering their qualifying campaign uh, for the rest of the year. Going to conclude our review of 2023 in Irish international football with a look back at the UEFA European Under-17 Championship. Ireland qualified for the elite round in uh, 2022. Uh, uh, the group uh, was held in Norway. Uh, Ireland finished second behind the hosts ahead of Belarus. And we're drawn to face Italy, Ukraine and whole Cyprus uh, in the elite round, which was held in March. Ireland actually topped the group ahead of second place Italy uh, after scoring one more than the Italians. And uh, in the tournament itself, we're drawn against Poland, host Hungary and, uh, and Wales. The squad itself was announced in early May ahead of the tournament. And uh, Ireland went there well, actually with a fairly young squad, uh, quite a number aged 15 and uh, Adi Solanke, one of the youngest players in the entire tournament, who was just uh, 14 when the tournament kicked off. 
And unfortunately, we lost the opening game. 5-1 against Poland, which immediately put us on the back foot, considering that host Hungary had beaten Wales 3-0, and it meant that we really needed to get a win in our second game against Wales. Likewise, the Welsh needed a win to stay in the tournament, but it was Ireland that came out on top with three goals. Uh, I mean, going into the last game, we knew that a win against Hungary would put us into the second round. The team played some great football and eventually came out for two winners going on to face Spain in the second round. Now, Mark, if you look down through the squad, it is quite young, but there's a couple of names there that we might that might be quite familiar to us, even already. Stan Ashby is actually playing for Hull City tonight, as we record. Jake Grant has gone out on loan from Crystal Palace. Matt Moore has gone from Cork City to Germany. And apparently scouts are coming over every week to watch Mason Melia at St. Patrick's Athletic. Absolutely. No, I think it's a great story, uh, Joe. I think the under-17s were one of the, well, I think it's the key highlight from the men's side of the, the national team setup, to be fair. Great journey in terms of the European championships. The amount of experience that the guys would have got out of that was superb. I think the resilience, particularly the, the pre-qualification campaign, you know, pipping um, Italy as well was very standout, you know, Okuson's last-minute goal against Cyprus, securing our qualification. I mean, this side showed an awful lot of great determination, but also showed some lovely footballing ability, you know, which was lovely. Real high tempo, good passing from the back, playing it the right way. As you say, an awful lot of good things going to come, particularly from Mason Mealy as well. I mean, he's only 16. God, he's a, a precocious talent. But again, an awful lot of these guys being scouted and the decision to go abroad as in continental Europe and not to the UK, I think has to be seen as a welcome move here, just from a technical playing perspective, skill set perspective. So look, I think, uh, Joe, an awful lot of guys in that Euros did themselves no harm at all. Um, scouts are on high alert in terms of the Ireland under-17s, which is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great story to tell. There's quite a few of them still eligible for the current under-17 squad. We've qualified for the elite round of the 2024 uh, under-17 championships after finishing second in the group behind Switzerland. You know, we the group was actually hosted in Ireland, in Cork, and we've actually had quite a tough draw in the elite round facing Portugal, who's a phenomenal record at underage level, current under-17 champions, Germany and Croatia, with the group itself to be hosted in Portugal in March. The group winners will qualify for the tournament itself, uh, which is going to be held in Cyprus, with the best seven runners-up also qualifying. I think we might be starting to see some of the benefits for players staying in Ireland when you think that, you know, if you look down through that squad and you, you look at the players who have already appeared in uh, in the League of Ireland, Daniel Babb has played for UCD, Eddie Solanke is on the fringes of the squad, Shamrock Rovers, likewise uh, Ike Orazzi and Naj Razi, Matt Murray has played for Cork and Miss Amelia has, has an FAI Cup winner's medal. There's a lot to be hopeful from this batch of players. Absolutely, and they're going to get high-quality opposition in March. You know, like so Portugal, Germany, Croatia, they're all standout programs at that level as well. So I always see these underage national squads as the stepping stone to better things. As long as the players are learning from the experiences, that's the key. From the body of evidence last year, you know, there's quite a few of these guys still underage since the European Championships last summer. 
I think they bring that to the table. So I, I would be hopeful here, Joe, that we can, you know, at least get a top two spot here. So uh, again, it's going to be difficult, but uh, I do like the brand of football that this group and this team are trying to play. And also the the fact that Mason Media, you know, Aikarazi, Matthew Murray, like we do have experience here that could cause massive problems for those other group um, uh, contenders. So I think, no, it's uh, exciting times for the team. And at least you can see the grassroots here. You can see the development, the the talent that's coming through. It's a very exciting prospect. We look forward to covering the elite group itself in March. Uh, hopefully there'll be streams available for fans of the, the youth setup for the Republic of Ireland uh, to watch. We hope you've enjoyed our look back at 2023 in international football for Republic of Ireland. This and in our previous episode, I want to thank Mark for joining me and just want to send our best wishes out to, to Phil from the Bottomless Pit of Football. He's, he's recovering from a, a sickness at the moment and we hope to have him back on the podcast soon, uh, safe and healthy. Here, here. Get well soon, Philip. We miss you. Take care, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon.